folks, this is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Aurora Quay to you, who joins me on the podcast to discuss perioperative buprenorphine management. I have the pleasure of working alongside Dr. Quay at Maine Medical Center, and over the last couple of years, have been fortunate to catch several of her Grand Rounds presentations on buprenorphine, methadone, medical marijuana, and how to optimize perioperative pain management for patients with chronic pain and substance use disorders. I think it's a rare thing to meet an active researcher with such depth of knowledge on a topic who is also able to communicate fluidly and make complex concepts accessible for the rest of us mere mortals. I'm thrilled that she agreed to share just a little glimpse of her work with us on the podcast. Dr. Aurora Quay is an anesthesiologist that specializes in regional anesthesia and pain medicine at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. She completed her residency at Massachusetts General Hospital and fellowship in regional anesthesia at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Quay's clinical interests include decreasing the use of opioids for pain management, improving provider education on non-opioid analgesic strategies, and in identifying analgesic techniques that decrease the potential for opioid misuse, dependence, and addiction. Dr. Quay has led committees to establish institutional guidelines for perioperative continuation of buprenorphine at analgesic dosing for patients with history of opioid use disorder. These guidelines have been incorporated in acute pain management protocols at MassGen and Maine Med. This change from the prior practice of discontinuing buprenorphine has shown early promise in facilitating postoperative pain relief while limiting opioid prescribing. Dr. Quay has numerous peer-reviewed research articles in lit reviews and print, including a study published in March of 2020 in the journal Pain Medicine titled, Perioperative Continuation of Buprenorphine at Low-Moderate Doses Was Associated with Lower Postoperative Pain Scores and Decreased Outpatient Opioid Dispensing Compared with Buprenorphine Discontinuation. I'll put links to that article and her other work in the show notes of this episode on the website. And with that, let's get to the show. All right. Well, Dr. Aurora Quay, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Will you give the listeners a brief background of your interest in perioperative buprenorphine management, a little bit on the research that you have done in the past and what you're working on currently? Right. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me here. (laughs) This is great. So just in terms of background for me, I have been practicing anesthesia for almost 10 years now with um, a focus on regional anesthesia and pain medicine. And I ended up getting interested in buprenorphine because uh, my chair at the institution where I used to work at um, wanted to find people that were interested in getting involved in pain management strategies for opioid-tolerant people. And so pretty much through that guidance and kind of reading about the fact that there really it wasn't any identifiable strategy in terms of managing patients, that's pretty much what ended up opening my eyes to the fact that this is an issue. And then, of course, with the amount of time that I have been working, we've just been seeing more and more patients that are suffering with opioid use disorder that are on these medications. And so I wanted to be involved in figuring out best practice strategies for taking care of them when we encounter them. This has been a a research focus of yours specifically, and it came out of your work at Massachusetts General Hospital. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, that's right. And you, and you currently have some papers underway or some trials that you're working on? Uh, Yeah. So... Um, most of my stuff pretty much has been retrospective analyses. We did do one review article that basically looked at all the evidence surrounding buprenorphine management. So looking at like preclinical studies, looking at clinical information from patients on these medications for chronic pain, 
And then also just studies that have been done in people that unfortunately abuse heroin and things like that and how buprenorphine um, kind of works at a neurochemical level. And kind of synthesizing all of that information, we came up with a guideline in terms of how to manage buprenorphine um, perioperatively, which has been adopted um, nationally actually now at this point. And then after that, we basically, while I was at Mass General, did some preliminary retrospective analyses on, you know, outcome measures such as like pain scores, opioid consumption. And that was um, published not too long ago, about like six months ago, just basically showing that there is promise with this this new management strategy. Yeah, yeah. It's an excellent article uh, in the Journal of Pain Medicine that came out. So a little bit of the questions I've got for you today um, tag into that article. So maybe we'll talk about that a little yeah. bit later. We'll definitely put links to your research in the show notes on the podcast okay. and any other resources that you want. So, uh, well, let's start with just a basic review of the pharmacology of buprenorphine and why different patients may be taking this medication. Because it's used for a couple of different reasons that we may see in patients that will interface as anesthesia providers perioperatively. Right. Yeah. So it's a very interesting medication. It's quite unusual. Uh, it belongs in the class of opioid agonist antagonists. So they're, they're, they're mixed opioid, it's a mixed opioid medication. And so what that means is that it partially agonizes the mu receptor, but it antagonizes the kappa receptor. And so in its class, um, there are other medications like Nubane, Nubufine. These are also mixed agents, but those medications actually agonize a kappa receptor. And so that's how they actually promote analgesia. So again, buprenorphine is just completely different even along those lines in terms of being a mixed agonist. The reason why I bring that up is because of the fact that typically mixed agonists tend to lead to analgesia through activating a kappa receptor, through agonizing the kappa receptor. However, kappa receptors also are involved in stress and anxiety. Um, dynorphins binding to this receptor end up leading to kind of dysphoric reactions. So I know anyone that's used Nubane or given Nubane to someone um, in obstetrics has, you know, seen, you know, kind of like the emotional disturbances and things like that that can occur with being on these medications. Um, but what buprenorphine does is it actually... Um, elicits isanalgesia through the mu receptor itself. And the kappa receptor antagonism that it actually does has been implicated in depression. So, you know, down the line, we'll probably see buprenorphine being used as an antidepressant medication as well for individuals that suffer from treatment-resistant depression and things like that. That's super interesting. I think these agonist-antagonist properties of buprenorphine are an element of its pharmacokinetics that confuse a lot of anesthesia providers. So we give these medications for people who are, of course, on medical-assisted therapy for opioid use disorder, as well as chronic pain. So we give them to treat and manage pain and addiction. But then the confounding variable is that makes those patients very difficult to manage in terms of acute pain. Right. Would you talk a little bit about how those, how the pharmacokinetics of buprenorphine um, are useful in those yeah. treatment modalities, but in the, in the why does that make it particularly right. challenging to manage these patients yeah. perioperatively? Yeah, definitely. So pretty much one of the reasons why buprenorphine works so well for patients with opioid use disorder is because of the fact that it is such a great analgesic agent. So it's basically binding to the same receptors that analgesic medications, drugs of abuse bind to as well. And unfortunately, the receptors that they bind to are really ubiquitous. They're dispersed throughout our, you know, our brain, our nervous system. And so you end up having lots of side effects associated with them. Um, so buprenorphine itself 
has a very long half-life. It's highly lipophilic, has a very large, large volume of distribution, and it also has a very high binding affinity to the actual opioid receptor itself. So all that said, what that means is that when someone takes buprenorphine, it ends up lasting for a really, really long time. It does not come off and on those opioid receptors very fast. Drugs of abuse, for instance, like heroin and you know even morphine, but uh, more so heroin, those drugs bind to the receptor and they're coming off in milliseconds. When buprenorphine binds to the receptor, it's on for multiple minutes. Um, you know, some studies show up to 80 minutes. And so what it basically does is it can work as a chronic pain medication because it's going to last for a very, very long time. And it's not going to be metabolized quickly because of the fact that it has such a long half-life. So all these things are quite beneficial. But the other thing that it ends up doing is that it ends up stabilizing the system as well. So what do I mean by that? Basically, when you have people that use opioids for a really long time, what ends up happening is that you end up getting desensitization of the opioid receptor. You end up getting internalization of the receptors as well. Uh, basically, you end up creating tolerance. And you know, any, we know anyone that we've taken care of that is has chronic pain or is on chronic opioids, we need to give them much more in order to be able to get the same type of effect is because our brains are really smart and they learn to adapt. The great thing about buprenorphine is that it ends up pretty much adapting kind of for us because it ends up basically giving back that opioid deficit. It lasts for a long time, so it stabilizes things. This ends up decreasing or um, stopping the drug addiction cycle. You know, people don't feel the need to use as much because they don't have the same cravings and things like that that they do when they take medications that have very, very short half-lives. That's fascinating. So there's different formulations, right, for people who are prescribed buprenorphine for opioid use disorder and chronic pain. Yeah. Those are different formulations. That's right. Will you exactly. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, the formulations that are used for chronic pain are Butrans, which is a patch formulation. And the reason why that makes sense is because of the fact that it's really highly lipophilic, you know, so it's going to be able to be absorbed subcutaneously. It's going to be able to last for a really long time. Um, and so that's pretty. That's used pretty frequently. Um, there's an oral formulation as well called Belbuca, uh, that is, um, an, again, oral formulation. The interesting thing about these chronic pain medications is that the dosing is a lot lower than the dosing used for opioid use disorder. Um, it's like one-tenth of the dose, basically, that people are getting. And so the issues that we have as anesthesia providers aren't as prominent, right, because they're not, um, there's not as, as much floating around that we have to end up um, kind of offsetting. Right. And um, in terms of the medications that are out there for patients that have opioid use disorder, again, much higher concentrations, um, but it lasts the same amount of time. The one that we're most familiar with are Subutex and Suboxone. And then there's some newer agents that are on the market called Zubsolve, Belbuca. Zubsolve and Belbuca pretty much are the same thing as Suboxone. Um, they are a formulation of buprenorphine combined with naloxone. So naloxone basically has that abuse deterrent effect uh, because if it's injected, you end up precipitating withdrawal, basically. So um, because buprenorphine can be abused, it, it not only does it provide analgesia, but it also is a very rewarding drug, especially at higher levels. And so when you create a scenario where you have someone that gets 100% by availability of the drug by injecting it systemically, you're getting at a big high. So naloxone is there to pretty much offset that, basically. So it's a boxone. Is that formulation, Belbuca and Subsolve? 
Balbuka and Zalbzal basically have an even better bioavailability. So therefore, you don't take as much total drug. So what does that mean? Someone tries to inject it to get a high, they're not going to get the same high they would get with Suboxone because the amount a milligram amount that they're actually absorbing is going to be a lot less. So practically speaking, those different formulations, when uh, an anesthesia provider meets a patient in pre-op, they're reviewing home medications. If someone's taking buprenorphine for chronic pain and they see those formulations versus someone who's on Suboxone, I mean, how should we think differently about those two types of patients in our pain management perioperatively? Right. Um, So I think a lot of it really kind of depends on dose. If you do see someone on a chronic pain formulation, you don't really need to make any adjustments for it because the levels are, are lower. They're analgesic doses that you can pretty much give other pain medications that are opioid-based, and they'll still work because there'll be enough opioid receptors that are available to actually allow other opioids to bind. So when patients come in with those chronic pain medications, there really aren't many issues that we have. In terms of when patients come in on uh, the opioid use disorder formulations and those doses, then it can be a problem because since they are, since buprenorphine is um, so potent, since it binds so strongly to the receptor, if we, and if it's given at a higher dose, like say if it's given at a dose greater than you know, 8 milligrams, 16 milligrams, 24 milligrams, something like that, it's going to be really hard to offset that by just giving another full opioid agonist. Another thing that's important to kind of understand about buprenorphine is that when it binds to a receptor, it even though it has a really strong affinity to that receptor, the downstream signaling that occurs is submaximal. You know, so other medications that we give, you end up getting increased effects appropriate to the amount of medication that you give. With buprenorphine, you don't. It plateaus at a certain point. And so this is why it can be very difficult to treat patients that come in that have pain on top of it because of the fact that you it's very if they're already at a high amount it's very difficult to be, provide additional analgesia because everything's already saturated right. and um, you're not going to get the same effect because it's a partial agonist. Right, right. Which brings us to the next question, which is, you know, if we have the opportunity to optimize these patients preoperatively, yeah. so for scheduled elective surgeries, there's this idea of either reducing the dose of buprenorphine that people are on or stopping it altogether. So this has been a big question and a big focus of a lot of the papers that you have been on and helped contribute to writing. So we talk a little bit about that question and and maybe the way that we could frame it is to think about, you know, what's the optimal approach to a patient who is having scheduled elective surgery, who's on this medication for substance use disorder. Right. Yeah. So you know, the jury is really still out in terms of what the best thing to do is because we really still just don't know. We haven't done any true study to look to see what is best. Um, that being said, I think it's really important just to look at everything and figure out the risk versus benefits for people. A lot of these patients, when they're on these medications, they don't want to come off of them, right? One of the reasons because they have um, antidepressive properties things like that, right? The whole thing about how it can be used for treatment-resistant depression. But then also, when you take someone off of it, it can cause withdrawal as well. Right. So I think that this was the practice that we mainly did, um, you know, a couple of years ago. It's definitely has changed now in terms of taking people off these medications when you can so that you can then be able to treat pain and not have to worry about competing with the buprenorphine, right? Um, now, there's, you know, evidence that I've, like you said, I've worked on to suggest that actually 
giving it at a decreased dose, an analgesic dose, so like an eight milligram dose. If someone's on 16 milligrams, get them down to like eight milligrams perioperatively. Then you do two things. One, you can prevent with people going through withdrawal. You can also help them still have their antidepressant medication kind of on board. And then also you can have enough opioid receptors that are there and available for other opioids that are given to manage their anticipated acute pain needs to actually function the way they're supposed to. So it's a lot easier. You know, you don't have to worry about having to give a supplemental medication, opioid medication, like in a couple of days before surgery, right. you know, to prevent withdrawal and things like that. These are meds that can trigger abuse for a lot of people, you know, trigger their addiction, opioid use disorder. So you don't do that, right? Right. Um, and then you can also easily just transition them back to their full dose later on. That being said, there are some places that actually keep people on their medication at the same dose. That's the reason why I said the jury's still out. We really yeah, don't right, know. Right. And that's the protocol for lots of other places in the country, you know, is just to keep them on a 16 milligram dose, sometimes even a 24 milligram dose. Wow. But the thing is, is that we know when these patients come in for emergent surgery, we're giving them a lot of opioids, you know, um, when we don't have the luxury of being able to come up with a plan to modify dosing and just keeping them as is, you need to give a lot to offset. The buprenorphine. So, what is the right answer? Right, we still we still really <laughs> don't know. Right, right. But I think it makes sense to decrease based upon what we know from the information available. Right. To and us. so, just to clarify for folks that may be less familiar with these medications, classically the approach to this was if someone's on buprenorphine for substance use disorder. We're going to stop their buprenorphine maybe seventy two hours ahead of surgery, That's but they've right. got to go on some sort of an opioid to prevent withdrawal, and so that. That time frame that they may be transitioned to whatever they may be. I don't know what, what what's typical. Uh, yeah. Morphine, hydromorphone, fentanyl patch. A lot of times they would get oxycodone, oxycodone. in that interim period. Yeah, or morphine. So they're going yeah, for oral. like a, a full mu agonist during that time frame. But the, these are often the medications that they That's right. perhaps would abuse. That's so, right. so you put them at risk for a relapse. Yeah. And if you don't give them that medication ahead of surgery, then then they just don't have anything. So they're at risk yeah. with withdrawal, which is not a great option. So, right. so keeping them on buprenorphine really does kind of stabilize that process right. preoperatively, but then dropping the dose down frees up receptors for full opioid agonists that we might give as anesthesia providers perioperatively That's help right. manage their pain. It's kind of the idea that we're going with. Yeah. Just to be clear. That's perfect. No, I'm so glad that you said it like that. That's that's exactly it. That's exactly right. Those are all the points. Yeah. And and then the other point that you brought up that I wanted to uh, touch on is that sometimes we don't have the opportunity to optimize these people preoperatively because they might come in for emergent or urgent surgeries. Yeah. And so they're on their full dosing. And so when so maybe put that into perspective. When you say that we have to give people a lot of opioids, yeah. what... what what does that mean for people? So if someone has not had a tapering or a reduction of their dose of buprenorphine, and now you've got to take them for, you know, a, a major surgery, yeah. uh, help frame that for anesthesia providers in terms of what they may need to do to right. get these people through their surgery yeah. uh, successfully. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, so so a couple of things. Like in terms of buprenorphine it's itself, when you have buprenorphine at a higher dose, like let's say, for instance, 16 milligrams. Typically, buprenorphine is given anywhere between 8 to 24 milligrams, okay? But 16 milligrams, at that point, the receptors, the opioid receptors pretty much are almost fully occupied, 
right? And it binds so strongly to those receptors that even if there's another ligand that wants to bind to the receptor, it's not easily going to be displaced, okay? So say you give someone dilated to treat their pain um, when they, they're coming in for like an emergent surgery, right? You're going to need to give much more dilated in order to be able to displace the buprenorphine from that receptor because it binds so strongly. It might take... 10 dilated molecules to offset one buprenorphine molecule. Basically, that's it. So not only are you giving enough to treat pain, you're also giving enough to be a competitive agonist right. against the, the buprenorphine. Okay, so... So it, pain is, and, and also the thing is, you also have to look at the type of opioid that you're using because all different opioids have different binding affinities as well. I say dilaudid because dilaudid actually has a higher binding affinity than morphine does. Fentanyl is also another medication that has a very high binding affinity. So sometimes you'll see providers that actually have patients on fentanyl PCAs or fentanyl infusions, even if, if it's like a you know, large scale trauma or something like that that comes in. But I guess the point that I really want to make sure that I clarify is that this is now the management strategy for a lot of places without evidence. Um, there, there are lots of institutions that keep patients and maintain them on 16 milligram doses of buprenorphine now as their elective management strategy. And it's possible that that is actually is work. It's possible that it is effective as well. Um, so it's just going to be interesting to see how our information changes as we um, try new things. I right. think that before the standard really was, the gold standard really was to stop it when you could. But now we're realizing, actually, maybe we don't need to stop it. There are all these different strategies that are coming up. There's There are even strategies, I haven't seen it published yet, but I've definitely taken care of patients where providers have recommended increasing the dose to 24 oh, or 32 milligrams, actually, with, with the thought that you wouldn't have to give any opioids at all to, to treat pain. That would be the pain management strategy. And you would not want to give anything at all. The attractiveness of that would be that you're not going to give them anything that they've abused in the past. So in terms of that, that could be stabilizing. But there are huge issues potentially that can occur as well in terms of what we see when patients come in with really high doses and we're unable to manage their pain. You're basically burning all of your bridges potentially, right? So That's very fascinating. But people are doing that out there. Right. You know? So, so I, the jury I, so, really... St- is out in terms of either so we're avoiding stopping the medication altogether we've kind of moved away from that but whether a reduction of dose maintenance of normal dose or maybe even increasing the dose these are all things that are questions for researchers like yourself that's right but then also yes and no there's still providers that stop it and there's still providers that are very adamant to stop it too um, and so this is why it's, but, but I think the good thing about it is that there, that, that people are realizing that we don't know. And so we're trying lots of different things. And ultimately I really do feel like everything that we do actually is okay. You know, I don't think that there is any wrong answer, but what I do feel like is that we need to understand the risks and benefits associated with whatever we do. So if you have a patient that comes in and the buprenorphine is stopped, you have to anticipate that this patient might need more. They're going to maybe require, you know, more services from like psychiatric help and things like that because of the fact that we have destabilized them to some degree. Like we know when people are off of these medications, the risks of relapse approach 90%. Wow. So it's very, very high, you know? So I think that understanding all of that and managing patients appropriately, then 
you know, maybe it's not so bad because sometimes patients really want to come off it because they've been told before that, hey, I need to be off my medication. So they get this high anxiety when you tell them that you want to continue it. And so that's a part of managing pain too, getting to where patients are as well. And since we're in a situation where we don't have great data yet, I really don't think that there's a wrong answer. I'm hopeful that as time goes along and as we are trying more strategies, we'll figure out what the best one is. I do think within five years, we'll figure out what the best thing is, you know, but hopefully by then patients won't need to be on buprenorphine. (laughs) Hopefully Uh, by then maybe we find something else or find a different management strategy. Right. Right. I don't know. Very interesting. So I want to talk a little bit more about the acute perioperative phase for anesthesia providers out there. I guess maybe yeah. we could back up a little bit and say there there are other things that we could do besides just right. loading them with opioids uh, preoperatively, intraoperatively to the PACU phase, postoperatively. What are some of those strategies? I mean, yeah. Obviously, regional anesthesia. Is this where all of the opioid-free analgesia yeah. techniques come in? Yeah. Uh, can oh, you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. I think that even along with management strategy for you know buprenorphine itself, these patients should be maximized on non-opioid analgesic strategies, however possible, however appropriate, for sure. Going to, you know, regional, gold, the gold standard for pain management, epidurals, nerve blocks, all of these things that we can do, those should be maximized. Sometimes maybe even used um, in these scenarios when you typically would not use them. Right, interesting. Patient, for sure. Um, definitely agree with that. And then also, there are lots of really good um, adjuvant medications that, Patients sometimes don't realize how good they are, but then when you give it to them, when they're in true pain, they realize the benefit and the effect. Like for instance, you know, I've seen so many patients that say they have a Tylenol allergy, you know, and that's, (laughs) you know, a a, a big thing because people really have been conditioned to think that, oh, Tylenol doesn't work. It's something that's over the counter. It's something that you can take at any time. That really doesn't work for me. Right. However... It does work. You know, the number right. needed to treat for Tylenol and Tylenol combined with, you know, an NSAID is much, much lower than the number needed to treat for opioids. Yeah. So I mean, it's amazing. Great. And we see it, right? When you right. have someone in the PACU that has so much pain, right? You give them Tylenol and Tordol and that's better. They start to feel better. Than giving right. an opioid. I'm talking about just opioid. I'm talking about everyone. In, opioid, patient, naive, right. opioid dependent. These are good medications. A chart that... Uh, was published in the ERAS literature from, I think it was the American Society of Enhanced Recovery, really changed my perspective on the approach to analgesia perioperatively a number of years ago. And it just talked about all of the things that you can layer on prior to getting to opioids. And for, for just a, uh, your typical patient, but thinking of, in, of opioids as a rescue analgesic, yeah. but that you should be thinking about these non-opioid therapies as kind of a foundation or a baseline. Yeah. And acetaminophen and NSAIDs, being foundational to that. Yeah. So in these patients that have complex uh, substance use disorders, they're on buprenorphine or chronic pain syndromes. I mean, like you said, those very basic medications yeah. can be very powerful. Oh, they're, yeah. they're receptors on the table. Why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. For sure. And so anytime, you know, I'm consulted for a patient that has difficult to control pain, that's the first thing I look for, you know, to make sure that these basic foundational medications are actually on their lists, you know, and, and you know, often, now, more more now, you know, people are utilizing. I think people really understanding that. A couple years ago, not so much. Right. So I think that, you know, us collectively as providers are really truly understanding the benefit. And we're just trying to decrease our reliance and dependence on opioids as much as we can, which also I think is a step in the right direction. Right, right. 
we, we could spin off and talk about opioid-free anesthesia and those medications <laughs> and, and do a deep dive on that, but that's not the focus of, of this particular uh, uh, podcast. So going back to patients who are having intractable pain, who are on buprenorphine, I've read a, a few of your articles that talk about, you know, that some patients have to have ICU therapy to manage their pain, where, where mm-hmm. things like dexmedetomidine come into play, um, high-dose opioid PCAs, which you mentioned a few minutes ago. Can you talk a little bit more about your advice for anesthesia providers if they have someone in PACU that they just can't get their pain under control yeah. and they're on they're on buprenorphine, how should they approach managing that patient? Yeah. I mean, hopefully it won't have to get to the ICU level. <laughs> I mean, that's always a last resort for sure. And that does exist. Um, I can't even tell you one time that I've had to do that actually. Okay. So in terms Great. of that, that's very reassuring. I think that discussing and communicating with patients is also very, very important. It's very easy for people just to get lost in their pain. You know, like just thinking to myself, when I have a headache, I feel like I've had a headache forever and I'm going to have a headache for the rest of my life. You know, like actually having discussions with patients to let them know like what to expect beforehand is always better. Honestly, right. beforehand is always better because I think it just kind of like helps them to get ready for what's to come. Having these discussions when they're in the pain itself sometimes can be challenging, but I think that they're necessary and worth having. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, just maximizing whatever you can and doing a block if you need to. If it's that bad and you need to do a block, then figuring out a way to do a block. You can do a block for most anything. The things that are tip very, very painful, you can do a block for. Um, if it's a neuraxial type of thing, unfortunately, you're, you're limited by... You know, you have to make sure that a patient actually is not on anticoagulation therapy right. and stuff like that. So that sometimes can be an issue. But we have like erector spinae blocks and things like that that we can do now that don't necessarily adhere to the ASRA. You don't need to adhere to the ASRA guidelines for those because they're not considered deep blocks. So I think that would be that would I would definitely do that before I admitted someone to the ICU for you know an infusion or something like of that. Of course, but great. sometimes these patients need to be on higher opioids, and that's also something that I've kind of come to terms with as well. There are times where you need to prescribe someone 20, 25 milligrams of oxycodone to get them through. You know, if it's there, if it's true pain, if you tried everything, it's still there. Their opioid system is is different, you know, right? Fundamentally, and so you just have to give more to offset it. Right, right. So not feeling you know bad doing that giving a milligram of dilaudid at a time. Sometimes you need to do that. But as long as you are safe with it, you understand the risk and you understand that it's temporary and the patient acknowledges that it's temporary. If it's longer than two days, longer than three days, then something else is going on. And if the patient's in the hospital system, you have to rely on your psychiatric yeah. liaison services, colleagues to really investigate and help the patients through the other aspects of pain that are that are harder to, you know, to objectively treat. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Can you tell us about what your approach would be if you were in the OR today and you had someone who was scheduled a few days from now, or maybe you're at prep clinic and they were on 16 milligrams of buprenorphine for substance use disorder. They were coming in for a major surgery that would be difficult to treat in terms of the pain. What would be your approach? I know there's many approaches available, (laughs) but what's the Dr. Coy approach? Yeah, thanks. My approach would be to decrease. I would decrease them to an analgesic dose because I know at that amount, I would be doing, in my mind, the best thing for the patient. I would be helping them continue to have treatment for their opioid use disorder, I, while also being able to create a situation where I would be able to treat their pain, not just using opioids, but 
knowing that the opioids that I use would be beneficial for them, would actually work for them. What dose would you have them? I would go to eight milligrams. Five days out? Um, so Two, three yeah, days out? so that's like, you know, a, t- a difficult thing too. And acute pain in general is different for everyone, but most often by a week it's gone. So three to five outlier, like kind of seven days. I would recommend that they should continue buprenorphine for three to five days. They should follow up with their buprenorphine provider within that time period to see how they're doing. And then at that point, the decision should be made to get them back on their full dose or when to get them back on the full dose. But it should not be longer than seven to 10 days. Seven to 10 days post-op. And then what about- That's, pre- that's a max. That's a max. What about pre-op? How many days would you have them on a reduced oh, dose? To free Just the day before. Yeah, Just the day before. day before. Okay. Interesting. Where's the research headed with this? Yeah. So I, I think that what we need to do is a prospective trial. And I think that we need to just basically have some patients where buprenorphine is discontinued, some patients where it's continued, and then seeing what the outcomes are. And I think that once we have that down definitively, that can really just help us in terms of figuring out the best way to manage these patients. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say about perioperative management of buprenorphine before we head out? You know, it's, I think in general, no matter what we do, it's difficult to manage, unfortunately, these patients. You know, patients that are on methadone for opioid use disorder, we we see similar challenges as well, uh, just because of all of the other things that are involved in terms of treating chronic pain patients, you know, opioid tolerance, opioid hyperalgesia. But then also we're treating them with medications that you know, have meaning for them, have, you know, adverse meanings for them. And so that is a difficult thing too. So I think that understanding all of that and realizing that no matter what you do, it's going to be difficult. Sometimes that in itself can kind of give you power to deal with it. But then also just realizing that, you know, just talking to your patients and seeing what they need too. Sometimes that can be, you know, just as helpful as the management strategies that we provide them as well letting them know that pain doesn't last forever and that they'll get through it, you know, and really hearing what their concerns are. All of these things are really important too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Roquay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about buprenorphine. Great. Thank you for having me. Hey folks, this is John. I hope you enjoyed that rundown of buprenorphine with Dr. Quay. Be sure to subscribe to Anesthesia Guidebook and Apple Podcasts, Google, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you dig it, leave us a review so others know the value you find in the show. It helps. I promise. Take care, and I'll see you next time.